0: Good to see you, folks. This uh, Lord's Day morning. Hopefully, you have a, a copy of notes in front of you that say uh, of the assurance of grace and salvation. I want to encourage you to turn um, in your Bibles this morning to First John chapter five. Excuse me, First John chapter five and verse thirteen. First John five and then verse thirteen. John 5 thirteen kind of a, a key verse in this particular letter we'll be talking a bit more about it this morning um, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life and let us pray father thank you so much this morning for the assembly of the saints and we thank you that we can begin this day the lord's day by coming together and fellowshipping and and worshiping you and praising you and delighting in thee and uh, these moments i would pray for the help of your holy spirit uh, as i just bring forth uh, some thoughts related to this particular theme i pray that you would empower me and help me to represent um your truth as it relates to assurance of salvation I, i pray that you would work in all of our hearts and enlighten our minds to understand your word and um, give us insight into our own particular situation and walk with thee and we just pray that you would be exalted uh, during our time uh, together now and throughout this morning and we ask these things in jesus name amen well this is uh, i've jumped ahead this morning to this is the, the 18th chapter uh, of the confession uh, it's on assurance of salvation and we 've been in chapter six, uh, considering the fall of man, and then the next chapter is um, chapter seven of god 's covenant and uh, Brother Carlton is going to be teaching on that in April and uh, then um, I want keep the notes keep the notes they 're free today next time i don 't know we, you know, but um, keep these because um, Next week uh, is prayer. The week after that, Scott Bills is teaching. And the week after that, we'll be back. And so you, you got to hold on to these notes for at least two weeks. And uh, we'll, be, we'll be back um, in, in March 19th. And then, um, okay. Um, so 18th chapter, it deals with the, the theme of uh, assurance of salvation, the title of the assurance of grace and salvation. Uh, it consists of four paragraphs um, and insurance of salvation is one of those uh subjects that uh, immediately I, I think commends itself to our thinking process, um, in terms of being very important because it directly deals with the salvation of our soul. So it's, it's a very compelling theme, and uh. You know, Just by way of testimony over the years, I've observed some folks that, uh, from my perspective, are very spiritually minded and, and serious about their, their faith and their love for Christ. But yet they, they've struggled with this area of assurance of, of salvation. And from my perspective, I, I, I always want to be careful because there's that passage in the Old Testament about saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. But it's always been an encouragement to me when somebody is concerned about the, the salvation of their souls. On the other hand, there's others who uh, don't, don't seem to be as concerned about that. They, they tend to take it for granted, and um, that is a bit more concerning. Um, have you just noticed that on the second page or so of your notes, um, just to kind of introduce it a bit further, um, this is some information from R.C. Sproul that I'm borrowing clearly from here. And and the doctrine of assurance answers the question, what we're dealing with, can I know that I'm saved? You know, can I know that I am saved? And and Sproul points out here that there's four positions with respect to this particular doctrine. Uh, The first one is there are people who are unsaved and know they're unsaved. Uh, These people are aware of the enmity they have in their hearts towards God and clearly want nothing to do with Christ as their Savior. Uh, They're bold to proclaim that they do not need Christ. Such people are often openly hostile uh, to the gospel. And uh, under, under this, this, this heading here, uh, people who are unsaved and know they are unsaved, th- th- there's really different versions of that. And probably some, you have some people that come to your mind. I, I know I've shared before many, many years ago, my, my dad wanted me to go in and share with my uncle, who was in his 80s at the time. He was dying of cancer. And so he just wanted me to go and talk to him about his soul. And, and he was not hostile but he, he wanted nothing to do with Christianity. He told me it's just like a, like a tree out there that falls down. And it was kind of discouraging, you know, but I was able to share some things with him. But you've probably talked to people like that, that just they just don't care. They're not interested. And others are more hostile to the gospel. So that's, that's one position. Then another, uh, number two, um, there are people who are saved but do not know they're saved. Uh, these people are actually in a state of grace But uncertain of it, perhaps they're wrestling with sin in their lives and and, and doubt their own salvation because of a troubled conscience. Uh, In this group are those who have not yet made certain that they are among the elect. And the confession deals with this issue in in paragraph four. Then a a third position is people who are saved and know they are saved. And this is the group who are, um, are certain of their election and calling. Uh, They have clear and sound understanding of what salvation requires and know they have met the requirements, which would be repentance and faith. They believed in the testimony of the Holy Spirit when he witnessed to their spirits that they are the children of God. In paragraph 2, the confession deals with that particular uh, issue. And then number 4, there are people um, who are not saved but confidently believe that they are saved. These people have assurance of salvation, without salvation I, I, the first part of paragraph 1 deals with, with that um, and, and at least from my own perspective and this is just you know speculation on, on my part this is um, a, a real sad category because it's, it's people who believe that they're saved but they're not saved and I'm dispersuaded because of easy believism and Arminian theology. There's lots of people in that category. They've made a decision for Christ at some point in time. There's no fruit in their life. There's no hungering and thirsting for righteousness. There's no interest in holiness. So there's I think probably lots of people in that particular category who do they think they're saved because they made a decision 30 years ago or 10 years ago, but, but nothing much has happened since then. So I, I think there's probably many in that particular category. So... Um, uh, sprawl is helpful from that perspective. And the, the, second, the second thing I want to do here by way of introduction, and really the whole time this morning, is kind of introduction to this particular chapter. But I want you to just, just kind of give an overview of um, the, the this particular uh, chapter itself. And so uh, in verse 1, excuse me, chapter uh, paragraph 1 can be divided into two main sections. Um, the reality of false assurance and the certainty of true assurance. So paragraph 1, two main sections the reality of false assurance the certainty of true assurance so the first part reads although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly deceive themselves with false hopes and carnal presumptions of being in the favor of god and estate excuse me in the favor of god and a state of salvation so that would be the reality of false assurance then the rest the certainty of true assurance Yet such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him, may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So paragraph one, those two main points. Paragraph two, the basis of assurance. The basis of assurance this certainly is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded upon the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The inward evidence of those graces unto which these promises are made, the testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, which spirit is the earnest of our inheritance whereby we are sealed until the day of redemption. And then paragraph three, so the basis of assurance. Then paragraph three, the attaining of true assurance. The attaining of true assurance. Um, The infallible assurance doth so long, does not, excuse me, the infallible assurance doth not so belong to the essence of faith but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it; yet, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given him of God, he may, without extraordinary revelation, in the use of right, in the right use of ordinary means, attain thereunto. And therefore, it's the duty of everyone to give all diligence to make his calling and election sure, that thereby his heart may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Ghost, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness and the duties of obedience, the proper fruits of this assurance. So far it is from inclining men to looseness. And then paragraph four, hindrances, hindrances to the experience of true assurance. Paragraph four, true believers May have the assurance of their salvation, divers is kind of an old word for many, uh, divers' ways shaken, diminished, and inter- intermitted, as by negligence in preserving of it, or by falling into some special sin, which woundeth the conscience and grieves the spirit, by some by some sudden or vehement temptation, by God's withdrawing the light of his countenance, and suffering even such as fear him to walk in darkness and to have no light, yet... They are never utterly destitute of that seed of God and life of faith, that love of Christ and the brethren, that sincerity of heart and conscience of duty out of which by the operation of the spirit, this assurance may in due time be revived and by which and by the which, in the meantime, they are supported from utter despair. so uh, those are kind of four main paragraphs that we'll be uh, dealing with, and what I want to do in the balance of our time this morning. Is, is make four points about this particular chapter. So these are kind of general points and then we'll delve into it a bit more uh, next time together. So four <clears throat> excuse me, four general points about the chapter. And, and the first one is simply, and you might have noticed this in, when I was reading through it, but first one is to notice that there are multiple references to first John. It's a pretty small book of the Bible, but you'll notice here, there's many references in this particular uh, chapter to 1 John. In fact, if you, if you go back and just look at your notes, um, you'll, you'll notice under the first paragraph and then number three, you know, there, there's several references to 1 John there. And then if you go to the second paragraph, you'll notice uh, number three, there's a reference to 1 John 2, 1 John 3. And then if you go to the third paragraph, you'll notice number two, there's a reference to 1 John chapter 4. And then um, also the, also number one, 1 John 5, 13. And then number five, there's a reference to 1 John, I think three times there. Um, and then in paragraph 4, um, number 2, uh, another reference to 1 John, chapter 3 and verse 9. I might have missed one. But the thing is, when when you look at all of the scriptures here related to assurance of salvation, you'll, you'll notice there's many that come from the book of 1 John, which would suggest this must really be a helpful book with, uh, with, with respect to the issue of assurance of salvation and the fact of the matter uh, it is. Um, Robert Law wrote an older commentator, uh, an older commentator wrote a book. It's entitled test of life. It's a commentary on First John. And um, as I indicated, I think verse 13 might be a key verse, but I wanted to just press this a little bit further. Notice again, verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God for this reason, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this idea of knowing is repeated several times in the book. Let me give you an idea of this. Turn back to chapter 2 and verse 5. Chapter 2 and verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Uh, Verse 3, By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. And then chapter 3 and verse 14 we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. Then verse 19, the same kind of language. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. Should start with verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but indeed in truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him. And then uh, chapter 3 and verse 24 Uh, The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by this spirit whom he has given us. In chapter 4 and verse 13, By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. Chapter 5, verse 2, By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. Um, In chapter 5 and then verse 19, So there's lots of verses like that that it just kind of presses upon us, this idea of assurance of of salvation. Uh, James uh, Boyce, in a work entitled Foundations of the Christian Faith, I said Robert Law had a commentary um, entitled uh, Test of Life, and and James Boyce kind of breaks this down a little bit uh, and indicates that there there are three main categories, so Test of Life. And there are three main categories to consider. The first is the doctrinal test, a doctrinal test. That has to do with believing the right things. And so at your own leisure, you can pursue this at greater, um, in greater depth. But this is brought out in chapter 2 and verses 18 to 27, and chapter 4 and verses 1 through 6, the doctrinal test. Let me just read a part of that in your hearing. Uh, chapter 4 and verses 1 through 3. A beloved... Do not believe every spirit but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that it is coming and now it is already in the world. And if you go back chapter 2 and verse 22, Makes the same point, chapter two and verse twenty-two. Uh, who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Messiah. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So, from a broad perspective, chapter two verses eighteen to twenty-seven and chapter four verses one through six. And and Boyce puts it like this. In other words, John is giving a confession which includes Christ's full divinity. God became incarnate, incarnate in Jesus Christ. So the doctrinal test, it's a persuasion of the divinity of the person of Christ, that he is truly God. Well, then secondly, there's the moral test. Doctrinal test, then the moral test. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's in 1 John chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. The moral test. or You could call it an ethical test. By this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. The one who says I have come, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. And then chapter 3, verse 4 and following makes, is under the same category the moral test everyone excuse me uh, 1 john chapter 3 verse 4 everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness sin is lawlessness You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. And uh, James Boyce has a clarifying point here. He says, simply put, um, those who know God will increasingly lead righteous lives. It does not mean they will be sinless. Remember, uh, in chapter 1, it says, if we say that we have no sin, we we deceive ourselves. But he says, but they will be moving in a direction marked out by the righteousness of God. He further points out, if they are not increasingly dissatisfied uh, with and um, distressed by sin, they are not God's children. So I, this might kind of sound a little bit tr- uh, trite, but it's not perfection, but direction that is important, the direction of righteousness. So <clears throat> John, he's introducing two kinds of people here. Those who claim to know God, but do not keep his commandments, and those who obey God out of a genuine love for him. So, we have in the second place the moral test, or you could call it the ethical test. And then, thirdly, <clears throat> excuse me, the social test, the social test. So, doctrinal test, moral test, social test. And um, I'll just read to you a couple of verses here from the Gospel of John that bear upon this. This is from John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you. That you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. And then in First John really presses this point. Uh, kind of the main um, areas would be uh, chapter 2, verses 7 through 11. And just two verses, uh, verse 10 and 11. The one who loves his brother abides in the light, and there's no cause for stumbling in him. The one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Then another section that deals with this, verses eleven through eighteen. Eleven through eighteen, and here notice just verse uh, 3, 11 through eighteen. I'm sorry, three, eleven through eighteen. Notice verse eleven and twelve. Verse eleven and twelve. For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning: we should love one another, not as Cain who was of the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. And then another section would be chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. Chapter 4, verse 7 through 12. And again, just two verses from this section. Verse 20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen... Cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him the one who loves God should love his brother also. So a really clear statement is back in chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. Chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 here, this social test. It simply says the one who loves his brother abides in the light. There's no cause for stumbling in him, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness. And walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes so the the thought here would be that um if a person is a christian they've been dramatically and profoundly changed by the spirit and there will, there will be a love and a compassion for other brothers and sisters in christ so um what i what i would do here is simply um between now and next time if this is kind of an area That you're struggling with um i would commend the reading of first john probably only takes about 10 minutes or so to read it but if you read it over and over again it's it's really a good book to go to with this area of assurance of salvation and um the the warning would be that um i got this from a professor in seminary he says what this book does it it puts you on the razor's edge Mm -hmm. and you you land on one side or the other and 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 so it, it does do that But if you get too discouraged, then just go to Romans chapter 7 and read where Paul talks about, oh, wretched man that I am, and it'll help a little bit. But it's a very, very helpful book. This is a book that deals with assurance of salvation. So if you pray for the help of the Spirit and read it, it's it's a very, very helpful book on that particular issue. It deals directly with it. So just to kind of summarize, um, there's a sense of the soul. There's a persuasion in the soul that Jesus Christ is God. That's the doctrinal test. Um, there's a persuasion of the excellence of the commandments of Christ and a desire to to keep them and practice them. And then, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> um, and, and there is a, a true affection for brothers and sisters in, in Christ and a desire to be a part of the assembly of the saints. Okay, a, a second kind of uh, main point this morning, just in, in observation of um, of the chapter is you'll you'll notice here, and this this relates very much so to assurance of salvation, the centrality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The centrality of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And the assurance of salvation, central to that, is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And again, I underlined some of those um, in your notes. References made to the Holy Spirit in the second paragraph speaks of the spirit of adoption, and then the spirit which is the earnest of our inheritance Uh, Again, in paragraph 3, being enabled by the Spirit to know the things which are freely given uh, Him of God. Uh, Again, there's a reference to the the Holy Ghost in under number 3 there. Uh, Another reference to the Spirit, at least two references to the Spirit in in the fourth paragraph. So in in this whole area of assurance of salvation, the ministry of the Holy Spirit is very important. Let me just give you two verses that speak directly to this. Turn, if you would, to Romans uh, chapter 8. And verses 14 and 15, Romans chapter 8, verses 14 and 15. Make that verses 15 and 16. Romans 8, 15 and 16. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. So, so the ministry of the Holy Spirit is, is central to uh, assurance of salvation. There is a sense of the soul that I've been regenerated, a sense of the soul of adoption that I've been brought into the family of God. So there's the centrality of the Spirit. Uh, another thing that you'll notice here, which is very, very important, and this has to do with achieving, or, or I should say, maybe coming to a position of assurance of salvation is the priority of the conscience. The priority of the conscience. And here, if you would, turn to the last two pages of your notes. And, and you'll see here that the priority of the conscience. Um, last two pages of your notes. You might be shocked by the size of the font on the top of the page, but it's the priority of the conscience. And um, it, it's central also to... Um, this whole issue of assurance of salvation. And and you'll notice that I underlined it, I think, also it, several more than once it's it's referenced in this in this area of assurance of salvation. Um, the, the, the conscience is the moral arbiter of the soul. And and when we do something it either says right or wrong. So it's it's the moral arbiter of the soul. And just here's some texts that I have um, that I think are helpful to, to bring this out. So it's very important as it relates to assurance of salvation. And you'll notice that several of these texts um, are Paul speaking about himself. And, and the reason that's important is Paul's like you and I. He wasn't God. He wasn't Christ. He was a sinner, but he had a good conscience. That means you and I can have a good conscience, and we need to have a good conscience. So that's, that's the reason there's so many quotes in here from the Apostle Paul. Verse 9, excuse me, chapter 9 of Romans and verse 1, he says, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. And then in 1 Timothy 1, five. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. This would that indicate that a, a good conscience is the effect of uh, being under the influence of truth. And then chapter 1 and verse 19, Keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. 1 Timothy 3.8 Deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And then 1 Timothy 4 1, but the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars suited in their own conscience as with a branding iron and then second Timothy 1 3 I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day so there's another one of those texts where Paul can say I've got a clear conscience chapter 24 and verse 16 in view of this I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before God and before men so it takes effort Chapter 23 and verse 1 of the Acts of the Apostles, Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And this this next uh, section here indicates that David himself, King David, had a, a very sensitive conscience. First Samuel 24, 1. Now it came about when Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, saying, Behold, David is in the wilderness of uh, En Gedi. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men from all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the rocks of the wild goats. And he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recess recesses of the cave and the men of David said to him behold this is the day which the Lord said to you behold I'm about to give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as seems good to you then David arose and cut off the edge of Saul's robe secretly and it came about afterwards that David's conscience bothered him because because he had cut off Saul the edge of Saul's robe Saul was God's anointed. So he he didn't have a problem cutting off Goliath's head, but he had a problem cutting off just just a part of of, of his robe here because he was the Lord's anointed. So he had a a tender conscience. So just a helpful quote here from John Gibbon, who's a Puritan. He wrote Get and keep a tender conscience. Be sensible of the least sin. As the apple of the eye, the fittest emblem in the world of a tender conscience, is not only offended with a blow or wound, but if so much as a little dust or smoke gets in it or gets in, it weeps them out. Some men's consciences are like the stomach of the ostrich that digests iron. They can swallow and concoct the most notorious sins, swearing, drunkenness, and so forth without regret. Their consciences are seared as with a hot iron, as the apostle phraseth it. They have have so inured their souls to the grossest wickedness that it becomes, as it were, natural. But a good conscience hath a, a delicate sense." It's the most tender thing in the whole world. It feels the least touch of known sin and grieves at the grieving of God's good spirit, not only for quenching or resisting or rebelling against the Holy Ghost, but even for grieving the Holy Spirit of promise whereby it is sealed to the day of redemption. The most tender-hearted Christian, he is the, the stoutest and most valiant Christian. Happy is the man that feareth always, but he that hardeneth his heart shall fall into mischief. Well, then uh, one final thought here, um, kind of an introductory thought in terms of uh, assurance of salvation is the necessity of diligence, the necessity of diligence. And just a a text I would draw your attention to here is 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, uh, 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. The necessity of diligence in in having a clear conscience. Second Peter chapter one and verse ten, if I can find it. Okay. As to this salvation, that is First Peter. Um, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So the idea here is um, diligence is to make haste. It's to be eager. So it, it would indicate assurance of salvation doesn't come easy. It will not come to those who are spiritually slothful. That is true assurance of salvation. So we have to discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness um the the let me just read to you you can turn if you would like the mindset that is needed is in proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4 proverbs chapter 2 and verses 1 through 4 this is the mindset that is needed in our approach to the spiritual life to have assurance of salvation um proverbs chapter 2 and verse 1 it says my son if you'll receive my words and treasure my commandments within you make your ear attentive to wisdom incline your heart to understanding if you cry for discernment, lift your voice for understanding. If you seek her as silver and search for her as for hidden treasures, then you will discern the fear of the Lord and discover the knowledge of God. So that's the kind of mindset that is needed in the spiritual life to have um, assurance of salvation. That, that, that's not what's going to relate to things like faithfulness in, in Bible reading and meditating on Scripture and prayer and avoiding temptation, uh, confession of sin, pursuing holiness. All those are going to relate to assurance of Salvation. So there's just some um, introductory thoughts uh, to this particular theme. We'll be back to it um, soon, March 19th, I think. So keep the notes and let us pray. Father, I thank you for the time together and and pray that you would cause it to be profitable to our souls. And I thank you that you know the hearts of all men. You you know where we're all at with respect to this issue. So I, I just pray that you might be pleased in the sovereignty of your spirit, Uh, to make application to each of our hearts and and just guide us and direct us as to um, how to attain assurance of salvation and what is the the greatest need we have at this point in time. So I I pray these studies would be uh, for your glory and for the good of our souls. And pray the rest of uh, this morning our our hearts would be uh, encouraged in Christ. We pray that our our fellowship would be precious and and, and sweet so we commit the rest of this morning and our day to thee. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.